Well, if you will turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, you can find a Bible there in the pew in front of you. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, we here at Bloomfield, we walk through books of the Bible together, and so we've been walking through uh, the book of Hebrews together uh, for several months now, and we come today to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 5. And so just as a very brief summary, uh, the book of Hebrews is written to help us understand the greatness of Jesus Christ, how Jesus is supreme, how He is great. It is written as a warning uh, that we should not neglect the great salvation that Jesus offers. Uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us a picture from the Old Testament of God's people who uh, were wandering in the wilderness, who were on that great exodus as God delivered them from their slavery in Egypt and was taking them to the promised land. And yet he, he uses that picture as a warning. He warns us that many of those people never entered into the promised land because they did not obey God and they did not believe God. And so we today are warned uh, that we should believe and we should trust and we should obey. And if we will not, that, that we will not enter into God's rest either. The writer here has helped us to understand that the way we come into this rest is through Jesus Christ and His saving grace. And it is that grace of Jesus that brings us to His Word today, where now we come to a section where we've been reading about Jesus as the great high priest. And in today's passage, there's a, a comparison given between the, the office of the high priest that we see in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills that office now for us today. And so we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and out of reverence for God's holy word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this text for us today. And this is what the inspired word of God says. This is God's word to us today. And this is what it says. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You would pray with me for the blessing of God's Word. Father, we do thank You indeed for this Word You have given us today. I pray in these moments as we walk through it and we study it, uh, that You would do what only You can do. 
and that you would help us to see this living word, that you would use this living word to, to, to bring change into our lives, that you would help us, Lord, to see the beauty of the gospel and respond to that gospel in faith and repentance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a universal question that people all around the world try to reconcile and understand. And in one way or another, the question is this. How can sinners be saved? We find in the Scripture, in the very beginning in creation, this, this question arises because Adam and Eve sinned against the holy God. And the, the question then comes to the surface Where is the hope for Adam and Eve? How can they be saved? How can they be reconciled to God? This is a question that people all over the world ask. This is a question that all types of world religions seek to answer. How can sinful people be reconciled to a holy God? In Buddhism, for example, you you have the effort to reach nirvana that comes through the eightfold an eightfold path. It's a, it's a process of emptying yourself out of all negative teachings and all negative feelings, wrong behaviors, in order to be rejoined with the Spirit of God. It is a religion of works. In Hinduism, you can worship one of many gods, there are close to a million of them, to get rid of bad karma that that may take several lifetimes to do and so you may need to be reincarnated multiple times in order to get to this point where you've rid yourself of this karma and you can join your spirit with God this too is a religion of works and then one of the largest religions in the world today Islam you find there that In Islam, as a good Muslim, you seek to obey the teachings of the Quran and the five pillars of Islam. And through these teachings and through observing them, you you can hope to enter into paradise. Now, they do offer one guaranteed opportunity, and that comes through martyrdom and the service to Allah. But outside of that, you can hope at best that your works will prove enough. It is a religion based on works. And the list goes on and on. There are so many religions in the world today that tell you if you will just make vows, if you will try harder, if you will go through certain steps and certain works, then perhaps you have the hope of one day gaining salvation. All of these things stem again from this question. How can sinners be saved? And in response to this, we see God's Word offers a very different answer. God's Word doesn't give us another religion among many religions. It doesn't give us a a list of things to do. It doesn't tell us if we can just try harder and make greater vows and have more religious devotion then perhaps we'll have a hope of being saved. No, God's Word actually tells us a a guarantee. It gives us a, a certainty and a surety of how we can know that we will dwell in the presence of God one day. And we see this comes through saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it is this faith in Christ that all of the Scripture points towards. And so from the beginning there in creation, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, we have a a promise given in Genesis 3 that one day a Redeemer would come that would crush the head of the enemy. Even there in Genesis 3, God is pointing towards Christ the Messiah. And then we come to books like 
Hebrews that help us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, especially this office of high priest. And so today as we walk through this passage, I I hope that the answer to that question, how can sinners be saved, becomes even more clear to you that, that you can see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus as we study this word together. We'll begin there with that first point in your outline. How can sinners be saved? Well, it starts with understanding, point one, that sin requires a sacrifice. Sin requires a sacrifice. And that really starts with an understanding that we sin. That that we are sinners. And I realize that that is not a politically correct terminology in our culture today. We live in a culture that increasingly doesn't acknowledge that we are sinners or that we have sin. In fact, if you point out the sin in another, usually you're the problem and you're the one with the issue. We live in a world that that goes by the mantra of diversity and tolerance. And if we ever try to say that anything is a sin, well then we're just labeled as judgmental. And yet the Scripture is clear that we indeed are sinners. That we by nature are depraved. That like our father Adam, there in creation, we disobey and we sin against God. This is our nature. And that's very clear as we walk through the book of Hebrews together. For example, there in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it's abundantly clear that Christ has come to make purification for sins. If we didn't have a sin problem, then there'd be no need for that. And yet we see this repetition in the book of Hebrews of Christ dying for our sins. Hebrews 2, we read that He's the propitiation for the sins of the people. And then there in Hebrews chapter 3, we're we're warned about the deceitfulness of sin and how that deceitfulness of sin can harden our hearts. And we're given, again, that, that picture of the Hebrews in the wilderness during the Exodus and how they didn't get to enter God's rest because of their unbelief and their disobedience. And that's given to us as a warning that we too won't enter God's rest because of our unbelief and our disobedience. And then we turn the page there in Hebrews 4 after clearly establishing that we indeed are sinners, that we have this sin issue. We're we're given this picture of Jesus and told that, that Jesus, while tempted, that He was without sin. That He was entirely sinless. And so we're reminded of Christ's glory as we're reminded of our own sin condition. And this isn't just in the book of Hebrews. God's Word gives us this picture from beginning to end. This is why God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59 verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And so it's not just Adam and Eve who could not dwell in the presence of God because of their sin. That's the case for all of us as well. Our our sin, our iniquity, it it separates us from God. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 where he says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And so please hear me, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. We're, we're not here to tell you that, that some of you are worse sinners than others or, or that somehow some of us have arrived. No, the Scripture puts us all in a level playing field. We all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And so we see that as we look to these things, our, our tendency can be to to agree in principle with this, to say, oh yeah, certainly people have sinned because we look around the world and we see great wickedness and evil. Again, just as I prayed a moment ago, just the 
news cycle of the last 24 hours. I'm not seeing anybody respond to that with a plea that, that we are all pure, innocent people who do no wrong. No, we hear people crying out about the wickedness and the evil that they see in our world. Many of you perhaps don't even watch the news anymore because you're just reminded of the, the wickedness and the evil that's in the world. You, you may have a hard time even turning on the television or, or watching popular media because you're just reminded of the wickedness and evil in the world. And those things certainly are there, but we have to be careful because our tendency can be to fool ourselves into thinking that the sin's just out there. That it's just the world that has the sin problem. And yet what we see when we open up the pages of Scripture is that we all have a sin problem. That these things should call us to look in the mirror and look to our own hearts and our own wickedness and how we too fall short of the glory of God. And the question then is, what will we do about this sin problem? We are all sinners. So how can we be saved? And the world around us gives us an answer. It says, well, just try harder. Just do better. You have this gravitational pull when you mess up, especially if you mess up in an area that you've messed up in before, to say, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better. And yet, how many times have we said, I'm not going to do that again, only to do that again? See, the Scripture helps us to understand why this is the case. The Scripture helps us to see we can't will ourselves out of sin. That there has to be a better solution, and God's Word gives us that solution, and we're reminded of it as we begin walking through the fifth chapter of Hebrews, where we read in verse 1 about the high priest. It says, For every high priest chosen among men from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. What we see here very clearly, the, the role of the priest was to offer a sacrifice. Why? Because people were sinners. And there had to be a sacrifice offered for sin. What we see this clearly established, not just in the book of Hebrews, and not just during the Exodus where God establishes the tabernacle and the office of high priest, but we see this all the way back in the garden. If you remember the creation account, you've got Adam and Eve, and, and God says to them they can eat of any tree there in the garden in paradise. He gives them everything they would ever need, but He gives them a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and says you may not eat of that tree. Now we've talked about this before. There, there are many reasons God did that. I think principally one is that God is reminding Adam and Eve that they are a part of His creation. That they have dominion over that garden, but that He has ultimate dominion. That, that He is God. And yet the desire of their heart was what? That they wanted to be like God. And so they began to listen to the words of the enemy and the serpent. They began to twist and malign God's word. And they disobey God's instruction. And they eat of that fruit. And if you'll remember, the very first thing that happens to them is all of a sudden they, they realize their nakedness, they, they feel ashamed. They try to cover themselves with leaves. And so God comes and He gives them the consequence for their sin. And if you'll recall, one of the things He does is He, he states the consequence for Adam and Eve and the serpent is we see His grace. And not just in speaking of a Redeemer that would come, but in covering them. 
See, their, their attempts to cover themselves were not sufficient. And so what does God do? God slaughters an animal and he covers them with the skin of that animal. And so we see established there in creation, there in the fall, we see established this principle that sin requires a sacrifice. God was pointing his people through these things to a greater sacrifice that would come. And so he gives them all these regulations and and rules and order there in the book of Exodus as the Hebrews are wandering in the wilderness for what this would look like. And in it, he points out specifically, which is point two in your notes, that a sacrifice must be offered by a priest. And so the writer of Hebrews revisits this. He, he shows us here how the priest had to be chosen by God. The, the priest was not self-appointed. That the priest was not someone who just stepped up in front of the people and said, well, I, I feel like I've got a special gift. I feel I've got a special calling. No, this was someone who God Himself chose and, and placed in this position of authority among God's people. Now consider God could have done this any way He wanted God could have in His creation created a a special angelic order in order to offer sacrifices for the people, but He calls from humanity those who would offer sacrifices on behalf of the sins of humanity. Someone who understood sin because they themselves were a sinner. And so the writer of Hebrews points out what we see in Exodus that, that the priest in order to offer a sacrifice for the people's sin had to first offer a sacrifice for their sin because they too were sinners and so we see this laid out very clearly in exodus 28 and 29 where god establishes aaron the brother of moses as that first high priest and he calls him to go in and we've we've gone through this before the the very specific details that are given and the garments he wore that, that really just gave the picture that, that he was carrying the sin of Israel on his shoulders and he would go in and he would make this sacrifice for himself and his sons and then he would make the sacrifice for the people. But we see right there in Exodus, within a few chapters, it becomes abundantly clear that there was a problem with this. The problem was what the writer of Hebrews points out, that that Aaron and his sons and others, they were sinners. So not only did they need to offer a sacrifice for their sins before they could offer it for the people, but we see in their sin how they led God's people the wrong way. And so within just a few chapters of God giving this instruction to the people for Aaron to be the high priest, we see Aaron leading the people in pagan worship. And we see as Moses is up the mountain with God, Aaron there at the foot of the mountain is leading the people to melt down their gold and make that into a, to a golden cow a bull and to, to worship that false god and that false image. And so we're reminded that this, this, this picture that God gives us of the priest in the Old Testament, it was pointing us towards something greater because in and of itself there were all kinds of problems. And then not only that, we're reminded by God Himself that the blood of bulls and goats and all these things couldn't atone for people's sin. God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 1, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, which we will get to eventually, says, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so we see Aaron lead the people the wrong way, and then we see Aaron's sons go even further and offer this strange fire before the Lord that was 
that, that, that was such a mockery of what God had told them to do that he takes their lives for it. And so we see there, there's a problem here because obviously Aaron wasn't the fullness of what God intended. He was pointing towards something greater, which is why the writer of Hebrews gives us this picture of Aaron that we might see the splendor of Jesus. And that's the third point there in your outlines, that Jesus is a perfect high priest. And so God gave this picture to His people that, that they might look towards Jesus and fully appreciate and understand what it meant for Jesus to be their high priest because Jesus, like Aaron, was chosen by God. And Jesus, like Aaron, was a, a man in His humanity that could sympathize with the sins of others. Jesus was truly God and truly man. And in His humanity, He could sympathize, but not because of His sin. You see, unlike Aaron, Jesus was without sin. And so we see this great distinction between the two. We also see that unlike Aaron, Jesus is eternal. And that's the point that the writer here makes by quoting Psalm 110. And this is one of those sections of Scripture that we tend to kind of skip over because he starts talking about the order of Melchizedek. And unless you've gone to Genesis 14, you're not that familiar with Melchizedek. And even if you go to Genesis 14, you don't know a lot about Melchizedek. Now what we find is that in Genesis 14 that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. And he kind of stands out there because he comes as the priest of the Most High God and he meets Abraham after this battle and Abraham gives to Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoil. He kind of just drops in there in Genesis 14 and then goes right back out. And he's sort of this mysterious figure. And then he pops back up in Psalm 110 and then later now in the book of Hebrews and we'll actually spend more time on Melchizedek in Hebrews 7. But for now, it's important to try to understand well, why is Melchizedek being mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 5? And I think the purpose is this. And Melchizedek stands out to us as someone who's of a different priesthood than Aaron and those who would come from the tribe of Levi. He's someone who we don't really know about his origin story and his beginnings, and we don't really know about his ending or what happens to him afterwards. He, he kind of symbolizes this eternal nature of a high priest, which is why the writer of Hebrews, I think, includes him by saying that you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He, he's pointing out to us the eternal nature of Jesus. Now, the question then is, well, why, why is that so significant? Let me ask you a question this morning. Uh, imagine that you had an inheritance. That, that this great inheritance was coming your way and, and you didn't uh, see it coming, you didn't know it was coming, and imagine it was to come at just a, a much needed time in your life when perhaps the debts were mounting and the bills were stacking and then you, you, you just get this letter in the mail and you find out, you have these riches coming to you from this relative that you had no idea they had left this to you. And that actually happens at times to people. It happens in many ways. There are some people who come upon fortunes, who come upon lottery winnings, who come upon other things, and this, this money kind of floods into their life. But, but often what happens? It doesn't remain. Oftentimes, especially when it's something someone hasn't worked hard to, to earn or just kind of floods into their life, if, if they don't manage their money well, that they can have great riches one day and they can be in poverty the next. I mean, look at the world we live in. Look, for example, at professional athletes. 
that you have people many times who come from, 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 from very little, and they have next to nothing, and then they, they work really hard, and because of their sports ability, they're, they're awarded contracts, and they have careers where many of them start to make millions of dollars. But if you follow these stories, so many times what happens? You see these folks who have millions of dollars deeply in debt, and they end in ruin, they don't have anything. Why? Because just because someone gives you this, this fortune, this treasure, doesn't mean it's going to remain. And what does that have to do with this? Well, this is what it has to do with. God in Christ has given us this treasure of infinite value that can never fade or run out. It can never be spent. It can never be wasted. We, we will never find ourselves without again. It is a treasure of infinite worth that is eternal. It, it is ours in Jesus. And we can never lose it. It will never go away. And so the writer of Hebrews has given us this, this beautiful picture to help us see that, that this, this Christ, this Jesus who, who understands what we wonder, who can sympathize with us, not, not because He was a sinner, but because He suffered and he, he knows what it is to suffer, that this Jesus is of infinite wealth and value because it is through this Jesus that we might come into God's rest. He's not like Aaron and other priests who are fallen and sinful and will lead us the wrong way. He will lead us to walk in truth and in righteousness. And that's why the writer of Hebrews encourages us so often to, to hold fast and to hold firm to Jesus and to, to hold on to this, this hope we have in Him. He tells us in verse 8 that, that this Jesus, he, he learned obedience through what He suffered. And so again, he's not one that sympathizes with us because he's a sinner, but he sympathizes with us because he suffered. And we've touched on this before. Many times in our suffering, we are tempted to feel alone. We are tempted to feel isolated. We're tempted to believe falsely that somehow God has abandoned us or turned away from us. But it's in those moments that we're reminded that Jesus knows what it is to suffer. That Jesus knows what it is to, to be tempted to feel abandoned in His suffering. And it's in those moments that we realize we, we are holding firm and holding fast to the One who is holding fast to us. And that's why the writer of Hebrews continues to, to remind us of these things. We talked about this last week, about when suffering comes, we're reminded to hold fast to our confession, to the Gospel, to, to stand firm in confidence, not because of ourselves and our own abilities, but to stand firm in the confidence that, that we are trusting in Christ, who will never leave us or forsake us, and to, to draw near to Him in the midst of our suffering. And we see how Jesus did all of these things in His own suffering. That he held firm to God and His Word and His will. And he, he had confidence in the will of God that would lead him to pray, not my will, but yours be done. In the midst of his suffering. We see Jesus in those moments of suffering when all others had left him and abandoned him, drawing near to God. That's why the writer of Hebrews says here in verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. This reminds us that, 
that Jesus never calls us to go somewhere that he's not already gone. And so the Christian life is one in which we, we follow Christ and we obey Christ. Which brings us to that last point there. Point four, we are saved then through obedience to Jesus. How can we be saved? We are saved through obedience to Jesus. Look to verse 9. The writer tells us, In being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. So how can we be saved? We're saved through obedience to Jesus. Now, some of you hear that and, and perhaps that, that pushes against you a bit. Perhaps you've been raised in an environment, maybe even in a church or in a family where you've just heard, well, to be saved, I need to believe in Jesus. So, so if I believe in Jesus, I'm, I'm saved. You, you probably had this conversation with people. I, I've talked to people all over this community. I, I, I've talked to people all over the world through many opportunities. And, and what I've found so often is those especially raised in, in this community or this part of our country in the Bible Belt, there's just kind of this universal thought that, well, as long as I believe in Jesus, I'm okay. It doesn't matter what my life looks like. It doesn't matter whether I, I'm doing what God calls me to do. But if I believe in Jesus, I'm okay. And so you can go to just about any street corner in Nelson County and you'll find someone who believes in Jesus. But notice what the writer of Hebrews here says. That he became the source, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation, not to all who believe in him, but to all who obey in him. Friends, here's what the scripture teaches about belief. But belief is important and belief is foundational and belief is required for salvation and paul in romans chapter 10 says if we believe we believe that god rose jesus from the dead but that's that's part of it if we believe but we also have to confess jesus as lord we have to have this saving faith see belief alone just intellectually knowing the gospel is not enough to save us so if you're here this morning and you know that that you're a sinner and you know that, that Jesus died for your sins. And you know that if, if you confess the name of Christ, that that's the path to salvation. That alone is not enough to save you. You have to actually act on that knowledge. See, the scripture tells us, James chapter 2, that the demons in hell, they know great theology about God. They, they know these things. They're not saved. And the sad truth is for many of us, we... We know the right answers. But we've not really acted in faith on those answers. And that's what's stressed here in Hebrews chapter 5, that we are saved through obedience to Jesus. And one thing that's very clear from Hebrews is that the first and the foundational act of obedience is to place your trust in Christ. It's to take these things you know and to respond in faith. I was 17 years old and a freshman in college when someone first presented this truth to me. I had heard different parts of the gospel throughout my young life. I, at that point, could pretty much articulate to you 
what it meant to be a Christian, at least what I thought it meant to be a Christian. I, I could articulate to you that, that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus rose from the dead and that it's only through Jesus that we can go to heaven. But, but I'd never actually placed my faith in Jesus. And I remember very clearly a friend gave me this illustration. He said, Richard, it's kind of like this. Imagine that you were standing on the bank of a river and, and there was a bridge that went across. And, and on the other side of that river, that, that represented eternity with God. That, that represented salvation and heaven and being saved. And, and this side of the river represented being, being lost and being separated from God and, and not being saved. And that bridge was, was the means God had given for you to cross from one side to the other. And, and imagine looking in that bridge that you fully believed, if I walk across it, I'll be okay. And you didn't question whether or not that bridge could hold you. And perhaps you stood many days in a row and you watched other people walk across it. And, and you knew that if you just walk across that bridge and go to the other side, that, that you'd be okay, you'd be saved. But you never took that step of faith. If you never step on that bridge, then you're just as lost as the person who doesn't even believe the bridge exists. Faith requires obedience. And Jesus Christ has said to us clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is an exclusive claim that Christ has made, and it is a command to obey. Have you placed your trust and your faith and your hope in Christ? Have you stepped out and crossed from one side to the other? That's what the writer of Hebrews has pressed for us here in saying that salvation comes through obedience and the first and foundational step of obedience is to place our trust in Jesus. And so the reality we're presented with here, friend, is this. You cannot be a Christian and live in perpetual disobedience. You can't be someone who says, well, when I was seven, eight years old, I trusted in Jesus and I joined the church and I got baptized and now I'm okay. And then you live the rest of your life in disobedience to God's Word. That, that phrase, disobedient Christian, it doesn't make sense in light of the lens of Scripture. Now, this does not mean that to be a Christian means you're perfectly obedient. Exhibit A. <laughs> That that doesn't mean that to be a Christian means that you never fail and you, you never fall short. But what it means is this, is that when you fail and when you fall short, that you cling to the cross and you place your hope in Jesus and you repent and you turn from your sin. It means you don't just try to vow and try harder or become more religious or if I just write a bigger check, everything will be okay or if somehow my good outweighs my bad. No, it means in those moments when you fail and you will and I will and we do, when we fail, that we hold all that firmer to the gospel of Jesus and we find in those moments that it is the gospel of Jesus, it is Jesus Himself who is holding fast to us. And this is what it means to live in obedience to Christ, to trust in Him and to follow Him. And it means that when we realize we're not, to turn and repent and trust in Him. And we are reminded of that every time we come to the Lord's table. 
See, the Lord's table is a reminder for us that, that we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That the Lord's table is a reminder for us that, that we're not called to be perfect people, but we're called to trust in a perfect Savior. And that when we fall short, and we will, we're reminded when we take this bread and take this cup that our hope is not in ourselves, but our hope is in Jesus. And so friend, is your hope in Jesus today? Listen, I, I don't know your heart. I don't have this supernatural ability to look out today and say, oh yeah, they're really saved and this one's really not. But God knows your heart. And God in His goodness and His grace has given you this opportunity today in a world that is filled with uncertainty and chaos where we do not know our tomorrow. He has given you this moment of grace. And He has called you to respond in faith. And so the way we're going to do that today is through coming to the Lord's table together. The Lord's table is an opportunity for those who are already professing followers of Christ to come together in fellowship with one another and in fellowship with the Lord. To remember what God has done through Christ. To, to, to preach the gospel to one another and to ourselves. And so, as we come to the table, the, the first instruction here is, is that if you've yet to put your faith in Christ, again, I'm not asking you if you intellectually agree with the gospel. I'm saying if, if you've yet to really trust in Christ as Lord, if you've yet to cross that bridge, then, then you are invited to observe as we come to this table together. Again, the reminders here that this isn't for perfect Christians. I, I talked to someone years ago and we were having a conversation about the Lord's table and we were considering 1 Corinthians 11 where it tells you to examine yourself and this person was saying to me, you know, every time I come to that passage, I'm just reminded that, that I'm a sinner and I, I shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. And I told her, well, actually, when we come to that passage, we're reminded that we're sinners. So we should take the Lord's Supper because... We're not trusting in ourselves, we're trusting in Jesus. But, but what that passage is doing, it's warning us that if you're in unrepentant sin this morning, if you're, if you're not taking the gospel seriously, if you somehow think you can just put on this religious facade and, and just kind of go through the motions, all while knowing you, you are in unrepentant sin and you, you just won't turn from it, and the Scripture certainly does warn us, don't, don't come to this table because you're making a mockery of the Gospel. So, so here's where that brings us. If you have confessed Christ and put your trust in Him, we invite you to come to this table with us. And if you have not and will not, then we invite you to observe. And so with that instruction, I want to invite our deacons, if they would, to come forward as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper together. And we'll begin with the bread. Christ gave this instruction for the Lord's Supper during the Passover meal. And what you may recall about the Passover meal is this was a meal that God's people would have in remembrance of what God had done. The, the people during that time in the Exodus were enslaved in Egypt and God heard their cry and He swiftly came and delivered them. And when He did, that there wasn't time for the bread to rise. 
And so they took with them this unleavened bread and they used it as a reminder of the swift action of God. And so we are called when we come to the table, when we take this unleavened bread together, we're called to remember the words of Jesus and, and how Jesus said this would be taken in remembrance of Him. That He was, that He is God's swift deliverance and salvation for us. It's a reminder to us that it's through Jesus that we're saved. Not through our works, not through our religious vows. It's through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we invite you now as the deacons distribute this bread to take this and hold on to it. And then I'm going to read the Scripture for us and pray. And then we're going to receive this together as a family. Let me start by praying for our time now as we observe the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank You for this opportunity we have. And Lord, we're reminded as we take it that as we refer to this as a meal and as a supper, that this is a small little cracker and a small little cup. It is insufficient to fill us. But it is a reminder of the day that we will be at the banquet table of Christ and we will be filled. It is a reminder of what you have done and it calls our attention to what you will do. So Lord, help our trust and our hope to be in you right now. Lord, if there is a brother or sister here who is just struggling with sin this morning and is unrepentant, I pray that you would do a work through the power of your Holy Spirit to call them to repentance, that they too can come to this table with us. And again, Lord, I pray as we come to it together that we would come not thinking that we've got it all figured out or have to have it all figured out, but that we would come as those who are just trusting in you and holding fast to the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us now as we come to the table together. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.